One of jazz's finest was Louis Armstrong. In 1967, he sang his classic version of What a Wonderful World. And you can probably hear his iconic voice now. I see trees of green, red roses do. All right, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's enough of that. He knew how to do it. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And Louis goes on to mention many good pleasures, common grace pleasures that God gives everyone. Blue skies, white clouds, day, night, rainbow, bursts of color, friendship, love, children growing up. It is a wonderful world. But we must also think to ourselves, what a horrible world we have made it. That would be a different song. Uh, but one that is equally true. I see battlefields of blood, broken homes too. I see drugs sold, eyes black and blue, and I think to myself, what a painful world. Brothers and sisters, by his grace and spirit, Christ has rescued us from our sins and misery and liberated us from the devil's power. He's transforming us. He really is right now. By grace, we submit to Christ the King with the light. But the world doesn't, and they resent us because we do. They're offended that we do. This creates conflict in the world, conflict in many homes, at many family get-togethers, at school, at work. In many relationships, see the differing worldviews, values, goals, they clash. And this creates tension. As children of the kingdom, we want the world to benefit from the kingship of Christ. And, and though we're not perfect, our attempts to stand with Christ and to love the world are met with such indifference and opposition. The world thinks we're intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, illogical, unscientific, religious extremists. Because we identify with Christ. It is difficult at times to live alongside people who are rebelling against the very king that we're trying to love and serve and obey. The, the friction that we feel in life, it wears on us. It's hard not to be disheartened and disillusioned. It's tempting to think more about the evil in the world than the king who has overcome the world. But in it all, we know, we know how the story ends. Because our king, he has been honest with us. It's the final chapter of the book that gives us confidence and hope to live through the previous chapters. And we're going to get into some sobering truths today. Sobering truths. And perhaps surprisingly, there's hope and comfort in these truths but we need to think rightly about them. We, we shouldn't second-guess Jesus, what he teaches, for all that he teaches is good and helpful for us on our way to his consummated kingdom. So here's where I'm headed this morning. As we travel the hard road of conflict and suffering to the consummated kingdom of our Christ, our hope is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of of their father. Our hope in this hostile world is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's, that's our king's hopeful promise to you and to me. 
Jesus used another agricultural parable to teach realities of the kingdom of heaven. And it's this one, the parable of the weeds, is pretty straightforward. But there are some challenges, some sticky points, which I'll try to help you navigate. First, the comparison of the king. This parable illustrates the kingdom of heaven. Matthew recounts it like this. He put another parable before them. That's the crowds. Saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The farmer owns the seed, and he owns the field, and he employs his slaves to plant the field. But while his men were sleeping, let's be honest, farming is hard work. It's tiring, all right? They're sleeping. His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And what a wicked thing to do. What a terrible thing to do. Darnel is a weed that looks a lot like wheat as it is growing. And yet when it grows and comes to maturity, it eventually produces poisonous grain. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So the wheat and the darnel are growing here together in the field. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, do you want us to go out into your field and to pull up all the weeds and get rid of them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. See, see the wheat and the weeds, they grow so closely together that if you uproot the weeds, you're also going to uproot the wheat. That wouldn't be good. And the master continues, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, according to Jesus. Pretty straightforward. And if you think about it, this parable describes things that we are experiencing right now. And it describes the coming judgment of God at the end of the age. So that's the comparison. Second, the provision of King Jesus. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the king is good to provide knowledge and understanding to his people. Jesus plants the good seed of his word deep within his people. He had encouraged them already to you. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. You see, Jesus didn't explain the parable of the weeds to the crowd. He left and entered a house where he then explained this parable to his beloved disciples. Verse 37 tells us, He answered. What grace, what marvelous grace to answer their questions. He loved the sons of the kingdom so much that he unlocked the mysteries of the kingdom so that they could grow in knowledge. He was planting the gospel of the kingdom deep within their hearts so that it would send out roots, establish a strong root system, and eventually produce much fruit from these men. They, they would need to be prepared. They would need a deep root structure 
to advance the kingdom through preaching the gospel in all of the world under much pressure. Remember, first century Jews expected this cataclysmic, earthly, geographical, and socio-political kingdom. They expected armies, swords, blood, political conquest, and they expected the Christ to lead them, to lead it all. But you see, Jesus came for a different purpose. He came to conquer and to vanquish in a different way. Knowing the common misconceptions about the kingdom among the Jews, Jesus wanted to give his disciples unique insight into the fact that the kingdom was coming in a different way than they expected. Jesus was fighting. Jesus was conquering. But in a way that would rescue his people from their spiritual enemies, their sin, the devil, and the world. Laying this foundation prepared them for imperial conquest through perfect law-keeping suffering, crucifixion, and glorious resurrection. They didn't expect that. They were not looking for that. But Christ taught them what to look for to see the coming kingdom. And, and so the parables also help us today to understand the kingdom. And the more we understand the kingdom and how it advances in the world, the less discouraged we'll be. And the more confident we'll be in our king's presence and his, in his defense and in his conquest now. Third, the power of King Jesus. And this is how he explained it, verses 37 and 38. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom." Jesus was talking about himself, he, identifying himself as the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was saying, I'm the long-awaited king. I'm sowing the seeds of the kingdom in my world. The, the present tense of sows indicates present and continued activity. Jesus was sowing the sons of the kingdom in the world. He was advancing his kingdom. The good seed here, we have to be careful with how we understand these, these different parables because some, some imagery changes here. So here, the good seed is not the same as the parable of the sower. The, the good seed here is not the word of Christ, but the people into whom the king deeply plants his word, into whom Christ plants the word. The sons of the kingdom are the seeds here. Daughters are included. So Jesus Christ, the king, plants the children of the kingdom into his field. They are the king's seeds. It, it is the king's field. The king is active. The king is responsible for the planting. The king is responsible for the growth. This is sovereign power and grace at work, planting and growing and advancing the kingdom in the world. Now, here is where things get a bit sticky. I want to be transparent with you as I wrestle with these things. I was wrestling 
Hence, this was a week later than what I was anticipating. I think I have it clear, but we could debate that if you'd like. Jesus said, the field is the world. What did he mean? Good scholars disagree uh, about whether world refers here to the entire earth or to the church. John Calvin thought the the world here in verse 38 was figurative for the church. J.C. Ryle thought similarly. Many others agree. And there are good reasons to believe that. But I think when Jesus says the field is the world, he means the entire earth in which the church is scattered. The entire world in which the church is scattered. That's the most natural reading of the term world. A few quick reasons for this interpretation. One, the term world is not used in the New Testament to refer to the church. Two, though Jesus exercises his kingly reign and rule, especially in the visible church, God has indeed put all things in subjection under his feet. Hebrews 2.8 says that God put everything in subjection to Christ and left nothing outside his control. So in one sense, the whole world is Christ's kingdom. Third, believers are mixed with unbelievers. Not only in the church, but throughout the entire world. Fourth, judgment at the end of the age is not simply judgment of those inside the visible church. The angels go throughout all the earth. Gathering, separating, and this, the, this parable refers to. Fifth, if world refers to all the earth, the church is included because the church is scattered throughout all the world. Believers and unbelievers live side by side in the world, but also inside the visible church because there are imposters in the visible church. So this illustration might help. If we talk about all of Pennsylvania, we are at the same time talking about Lancaster County because Lancaster County is in Pennsylvania. So I agree with Calvin and Ryle. I simply think Jesus is talking in broader terms. So I agree this parable does have applications to the visible church. So in verse 41, when Jesus says, the angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. I take it to mean Jesus will rid the universe of all causes of sin and lawbreakers. He will redeem and restore all creation and he will purify and perfect uh, perfect his church. And then his universal kingdom will be a perfect kingdom without any evil present. In this kingdom, is where the one people of God, you and I, will shine like the sun. When Jesus said, the field is the world, I think it's most natural to interpret that as the whole world. And scattered across our king's field, across his world, under his universal dominion, is the church where we see the beginnings of the kingdom and the especial uh, kingship of Christ. For he is honored as king. This is the power of our king. Fourth, the enemies of King Jesus. Verses 38 and 39. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Let that sink in. These, these are sobering realities that I'm preaching right now. Let it sink in. The devil 
is Jesus's enemy who maliciously sows his sons throughout the world and even in the church. Verse 26 says, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The sons of the kingdom bear good grain and you can tell that they belong to the king by the grain that they produce. This is the king's powerful and gracious work. It's his kingdom advance in the world. And yet alongside the, king, the sons of the kingdom are the sons of the devil growing and producing toxic grain in opposition to the king. This is a sobering truth. Coexisting in the world right now and coexisting in the visible church right now are the sons of the kingdom and the sons of of the devil. Sometimes it's obvious who's who. Other times it's impossible to tell. But eventually, as this parable confirms, the kind of fruit that they produce gives them away. Now this kind of thinking, I am well aware, makes a lot of people squirm and makes them very uncomfortable. But these are categories and labels straight from Jesus himself. Jesus is crystal clear in his distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil, and we also should think in these distinctions, in these categories. In Matthew 23, verse 15, Jesus called the most religious and pious people around, the scribes and Pharisees, children of hell. That wouldn't be popular language today. In John 8, Jesus told some obstinate Jews flat out, you are of your father the devil. Guess what they did soon after that? They picked up stones in order to kill him. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God filled Paul and compelled him to tell Elumis, the magician, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 1 John 3.10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Sons of the kingdom, Sons of the devil are biblical categories. The king gave us these categories. And the king gave us these categories so that we could make sense of what is happening in the world around us. The world is burning to the ground. Why? We know because our king is telling us. He's explaining. Now, I'm very sensitive at this point of how I, I'm heard and some of the different dynamics with this, this distinction does not in any way mean we should hate, malign, mistreat, avoid, or seek to rid the earth of the sons of the evil one. I think this parable makes the point that the sons of the kingdom are not to go throughout all the earth ridding it of evildoers. The field is not to be weeded now. The crusades were evil. They were wicked. The gospel of the kingdom must not and cannot be advanced by the bloody sword. It is, is, it is advanced. The kingdom is advanced in the world as the king subdues a people to himself by the spirit through the preaching of the gospel. That's a different sword. Our king has taught us 
that we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, which I think only strengthens the case that the field is the world. Of course, we should practice church discipline. The, 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 the scriptures are very clear that we should try to have a pure church. Practice church discipline, absolutely. But we need not rid all of the earth of all lawbreakers now. In fact, we couldn't. That's not for us to do. Sometimes you can't tell. So I, I like how Pastor Chris Gordon paraphrases Jesus' perspective here. Quote, I'm allowing this so that you grow and you bud, my good soil. You need to know I have an earth full of wheat. Dear Christians, many of them have not yet budded. But since I have not taken out the bad soils, that's why there's so much conflict. That's why there's so much struggle. That's why this world is such a mess. It's because Satan has sons here wreaking havoc. But listen, I have wheat and they're not where I want them yet. Pastor Chris Gordon adds, the whole thrust of this is you got to be patient because God is saving all of his sheep, his good soil. Why is the Lord tarrying? Look at the world. Why hasn't he returned? Isn't he sick of all the evil in the world? Why is he tarrying? His wheat's not done growing. Not all the elect have been saved. There's hope in this parable. One of our greatest hopes is that our king will save every last one of his people. He will one day rid the earth of all evil and he will one day take you and me, his, his righteous ones, into his consummated kingdom to shine like the sun forever. That's our hope. That's the gospel. Fifth, the return of King Jesus. Verse 39 the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. According to verse 30, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil must coexist in the world until the harvest. This, this explanation helped the disciples understand the existence of evil and God's enemies until the consummated kingdom. One source noted this, this Nazarene is doing messianic miracles and claiming absolute authority, yet the kingdom he inaugurates is not crushing its human opposition. As one author has said, the disciples want to know how the kingdom could allow its enemies to go unchecked, unquote. So they're looking at things saying, what kind of kingdom is this? I mean, is this what, evil's just going to continue to exist? Aren't you doing anything about that? They didn't get it. They didn't understand his redemptive work and what, what he had come to do. Jesus was assuring them that though evil would not be eradicated in this life, justice would be done at the end of the age. This gave them hope that righteousness and justice will prevail. At his return, Jesus would send his angels throughout all the earth to gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into hell. Jesus promised his return. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus takes up this, 
uh, theme, the, the same theme of the parables of the weeds again, and he explains it like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The harvest at the end of the age is the return of Christ when he judges and consummates his kingdom. Sixth, the judgment of King Jesus. The judgment of King Jesus. I'll put it bluntly. True Christians do not reject the reality of God's judgment and hell. It's essential to our faith. To reject the clear teaching of Jesus on hell is to reject Jesus himself. Jesus used vivid imagery to describe God's divine and just wrath. The weeds are gathered, they are bound, and they are burned. That is the unmistakable judgment of God and hell. Look at verses 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. He's using imagery here to give us a truth of the kingdom. That, that the, the flames are an image of something. The, the consumption of the weeds is an image of something. So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's figurative language describing a reality that's much worse than the figure given. The figure can't encapsulate all of, of, of the actual reality. This shouldn't surprise us to hear Jesus talk in these terms. John the Baptist preached about Christ back in chapter 3. We heard this a while ago. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The sons of the devil, everyone who refused subjection to the king will be condemned by God on the last day and hurled into the fires of hell to suffer God's just condemnation, vengeance forever. That's sobering. But it's true. It's sobering, but it's true. Oh, that every unbeliever here today would repent of your sins and turn to Christ for mercy, grace, and salvation. Turn to Christ, or you will surely suffer the anguish of God's eternal and righteous vengeance. It is loving for us to tell you this. Notice the angels gather out of Christ's kingdom. Well, could that refer to the church? And I say, yes, yes. But I think it's broader. Christ will rid all creation of all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The new heavens and the new earth are glorious because there is no evil in the redeemed and restored creation. None at all. Christ will rid the earth of all stumbling blocks. He'll rid the earth of all causes of sin. He'll rid the earth of those who rebelled against him and, and, and God's holy law. So the consummated kingdom is the universal reign and rule of Christ over a new and redeemed creation and people. That's when the work is done and we're perfected. Now, 
I know the thought of hell is unsettling. It should be, to a certain extent, it should be. It is unsettling. The thought of hell is one reason that people abandon the Christian faith. Too much for them. But that's irrational because everyone has a sense of justice. If someone breaks the law and murders our loved one, and, and abuses a child, we yearn for the goodness of justice. And, and if any judge would simply let the guilty murderer or pedophile go without any consequence for their heinous lawlessness, we would be enraged and consider that judge a monster. Am I speaking truth? So it works here in our lives Justice is wonderful when we're the offended party, but in the case of divine law, God alone is the offended party. How can anyone fault God for his good justice? See, if there is no hell, no consequence for transgressing God's infinite holiness, God would not be just, nor would God be good. Do you understand that? We expect earthly judges to uphold the law. Why would we expect anything less from God? the holy judge, the divine judge. Many, many people, they think about this and they link the existence of hell to God not being good. How could he? It's not good. How could he possibly ordain things like this? That kind of God would be a monster. But they don't realize that hell is compelling evidence that God indeed is good. He never turns a blind eye to injustice, never. And that's a comfort to people who understand that. He sees injustice and he cares and vengeance is coming. The devil, all his demons and all lawbreakers who refuse to come to Christ will receive the eternal justice of God in hell. Why? Precisely because God is good. And that's what they preferred isn't it hopeful and comforting to know that one day God will rid the universe of all evil? Sending lawbreakers to hell has another side to it, dear saints, a side that we need to carefully consider, a pure and glorious kingdom entirely absent of evil and those who do it. That's what we inherit, dear church, and he will perfect us and in that day, we will not contribute evil to it. We will be purged of it, of all evil, sanctified to live in his kingdom forever, authorized to be there by the merits of Christ. Maybe we struggle with God's justice because we haven't suffered enough injustice. Sons of the kingdom who are imprisoned and hanged and burned at the stake and beheaded and raped and tortured and separated from their family long for justice, the goodness of justice, and they hope in God's coming judgment. They long for a kingdom purged of all evil. Might we struggle with the concept of hell because we do not esteem God's holiness and righteousness as we ought. And we think too well of human nature. Perhaps the Reformation Study Bible's assessment is right about us, and I think we should carefully consider this. This, this, is, this is something to think about. Quote, it is difficult even as Christians to accept the reality of hell. For the most part, we would rather stand with our wicked fellow men than rejoice in the vindication of God's righteousness and justice. 
That is because as Christians, we still have far more in common with Adolf Hitler than we do with Jesus Christ. We are not consumed with the righteousness and holiness of God, and we are still bound up by much unresolved inner guilt. This, thus, it is easier for us to sympathize with sinners and excuse them than it is for us to sympathize with the judge of all the earth. That's worth thinking about. That's worth thinking about. The more we revere and esteem the holiness and righteousness of God, the more hell will make sense. And the deeper comfort we will find in the cross of our king to deny the reality or severity of hell is to belittle the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The cross, it makes a statement about the holiness and righteousness of God and the necessity of hell and at the same time makes a glorious and marvelous and fantastic statement about the mercy, grace, and love of God. Heidelberg 44 asks, why is there added he descended into hell? That's part of the Apostles' Creed that, that, that we confess here. Why is that important? Why do we confess that? How does that give us any hope? It answers with our comfort in mind, and I love the Heidelberg Catechism because it has our comfort in mind. That's how it's written. So this is what it says. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Christ was rendered a sinner on our behalf. And in exchange, God reckons us righteous because of the merits of our Christ imputed and credited to us. The king's angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. What a glorious day that will be for us who are counted righteous by God because not only will evil around us be eradicated, the evil in us will be eradicated. By emptying his kingdom of all unrighteousness, our king will empty us of all unrighteousness, thus completing his grand and glorious and magnificent work of redemption. We will no longer struggle to obey God's law. It will come naturally, it will be good, and we will rejoice in it. It's fantastic. We will be perfect. We will always do God's law. In that day, in the consummated kingdom, forever, saints. We must not doubt the goodness of our God because of the reality of his justice and hell. The more we question it, and the more we are unsettled by it, the less we will delight in Christ our Savior and the coming hope of his judgment. God's judgment will bring us the best of things. Do we realize what has to happen for us to have a kingdom that is without evil? Seventh, the resplendent of King Jesus. And what I mean by this statement is that you and I are the resplendent. Brothers and sisters, we are the resplendent of King Jesus. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 43 is gospel to our ears. We are the righteous. 
We are the righteous because God imputes Christ's righteousness to us through faith. Because of the merits of Christ reckoned to us through faith, God considers you and considers me righteous. We are the righteous. The church is the righteous. And when harvest time comes, Christ will gather us, his righteous, his church, and bring us into his barn, into his consummated kingdom. Matthew Henry, there are times that you read people, they just are so eloquent and helpful, and they put things in beautiful ways. This is how Matthew Henry put it quite beautifully. They shall shine forth as the sun from behind a dark cloud. At death they shall shine forth to themselves. At the great day they will shine forth publicly before all the world. Their bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. They shall shine by reflection with a light borrowed from the fountain of light. Their sanctification will be perfected and their justification published. God will own them for his children and will produce the record of all their services and sufferings for his name. They shall shine as the sun, the most glorious of all visible beings. End quote. The parable of the weeds is the king's promise to us to fully and finally conquer all his and our enemies and to give us a pure, undefiled, unpolluted and glorious kingdom of righteousness. Justice will prevail and we will be glorified with our king to reign and rule with him forever. This is what makes the conflict and stress here and now worth it, entirely worth it. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? If you have ears to hear this, you will hear this as gospel. You will hear this as good news, as the king's glorious promise to you. So here are our six quick applications. I hope these are meaningful to you. Number one, draw hope from the understanding your king has given you. So if you're tracking with this, if this is good to you, it is your king granting you knowledge and understanding and granting you the resulting comfort from this. Two, be thankful that Christ has brought you into his kingdom. Oh my, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's good news. That's gospel. Just let gratitude overtake you. Three, do not be surprised or fear the presence and opposition of your enemies. Folks, the world is a mess. Don't be, dis don't be uh, surprised. Don't be surprised that the world is a mess. Opposition confirms what Jesus said. Lawbreakers breaking God's law with pride and arrogance Confirm what Jesus said. When the world doesn't understand us, doesn't receive us, doesn't find the gospel particularly good, it confirms what Jesus said. Dr. Legan Duncan said this, quote, when we see hypocrisy and unbelief in the church, this is not proof that the Bible is wrong, it's proof that the Bible is right, unquote. Exactly right. 
Many people getting into these deconversion stories, and, which I mentioned a little bit ago, um, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, whenever it was, that, that unsettles people. But it, why? It's just confirming exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's only making our case stronger that the Bible is true. Weed and weeds coexist till the king returns with his angels to judge the living and the dead, and we confess that. And whatever injustice you suffer, and I know that some of you have suffered injustice. It's not fair. You shouldn't have been treated that way. That should not have happened. Do not fear. Do not fear. It will not consume you. It will not overrun you. It will not take you outside of the grace of God. Quite the opposite. Your king sees every last injustice and his justice will prevail. That's a comfort to you who have suffered injustice. Jesus will make it right. Four, wait for the return of your king with patient anticipation. Stress can make things very difficult in this life. To wait here amidst the mess and we get impatient for justice. We think it needs to be immediate, and that can be very discouraging when it's not. But justice will prevail, goodness will prevail, our king will come. We want it now, but, but see, since you know that your king will come, and you know that you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father, wait with patience. And you know, as you wait, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you. Have such a tender heart for those who are lost on their way. Love. Five, find comfort in the righteous judgment of your king. Jesus misses nothing. Nothing. He will rid the universe of evil, and the kingdom that you inherited is a kingdom of universal purity, universal righteousness, universal goodness. God's judgment and hell confirm it. And six, Find comfort in the promise of your future glorification in heaven with Christ. I'll let Paul make this point. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Folks, we will be glorified with him, but we must suffer with him now. Brothers and sisters, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. He promised us, and he never breaks a promise.